Hello and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show for you guys today. We are going to jump right into today's episode without further ado. First article, new study finds this body part may be key to early Alzheimer's detection. And Corin Miller wrote this one. Alzheimer's disease and related dementias impact about 5.8 million people in the U.S., but properly diagnosing the condition is tricky. Now, a new study finds that early symptoms of Alzheimer's may actually show up in the eyes. The study, which was published in the journal Acta Neuropathologica, analyzed donated tissue from the retina, the light-sensitive layers of nerve tissue at the back of the eye and brains of 86 people with different degrees of mental decline. This was the largest study on retinal samples and dementia conducted so far, according to the researchers. The tissue was then compared to tissue from donors who had normal cognitive function. The researchers found there were increases in beta amyloid, a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, in the tissue of people who had either Alzheimer's disease or early cognitive decline. Researchers also discovered that certain cells which repair and maintain other cells and clear beta amyloid from the brain and retina declined by about 80% in people who had cognitive issues. The researchers concluded that the findings may lead to reliable retinal biomarkers for non-invasive retinal screening and monitoring of Alzheimer's disease. The study raises a lot of questions about a possible eye test for Alzheimer's disease, whether it may be coming and why looking at the eyes may help diagnose the condition. Here's the deal according to doctors. Why might Alzheimer's disease symptoms appear in the eyes? This actually isn't the first study to find a connection between Alzheimer's disease and the eyes. In fact, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, AAO, says online that studies show a clear relationship between brain tissue and eye tissue. Several studies have shown changes in the retina in people with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, specifically changes in the layers of the retina or the blood flow within the eye. Another study using fluorescence lifetime imaging, ophthalmoscopy, or FLIO, has also found the imaging technique can measure beta amyloid in the retina. Research has determined, too, that there are changes in eye tissue in patients who have brain diseases like Parkinson's disease and mad cow disease. But why? The retina is considered an extension of the brain, according to doctors. It is the only central nervous system organ not encapsulated by bone. Hence, it is easily accessible for visualization directly, non-invasively, and affordably, with high spatial resolution and sensitivity. The brain and eye have nerves running between them, say doctors. Nerves contain two parts, a body and an axon. The body contains all important parts to regulate the nerve's maintenance and growth, and the axon is a very, very long tail. Axon are long and if damaged anywhere, they begin to degenerate, often from the tip backwards towards the body. When you look at the eyes, you are looking at the tips of the nerves, doctors say. The nerves run all the way to the back of the brain, and as you can imagine, the brain disease might easily interfere with the health of these very long projections. Most diseases that impact the brain have some sort of impact on the optic nerve, the nerve that carries messages from the retina to the brain, or the retina. This is because these structures are part of the central nervous system, and they use much of the same molecular machinery used in the brain. When things go wrong in the brain, there is typically a sign of this in the retina, at least as seen in post-mortem tissues. How is Alzheimer's currently diagnosed? 
Before the early 2000s, doctors could only suspect someone had Alzheimer's disease. The only way to know for certain whether the person actually had it was from an autopsy performed after the patient died. Now doctors can perform a series of tests to try to look for markers of Alzheimer's disease. These include measuring the levels of proteins associated with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias after collecting cerebral spinal fluid via a spinal tap and doing brain scans like computed tomography or CT or magnetic resonance imaging and MRI or positron emission tomography, PET, to support an Alzheimer's diagnosis or rule out other possible causes for symptoms. We have new drugs for the treatment of Alzheimer's that are here, but to make the diagnosis and be eligible to prescribe these drugs, invasive and expensive tests are done. New ways of making the diagnosis are needed. So will there be an eye test for Alzheimer's disease? Experts say we're not there yet. The study was conducted on post-mortem tissue, and it's difficult to draw conclusions about whether we can make strong predictions about cognitive status from simply examining the retina at this time. Other doctors agree. Practical implications, there are none yet, they say. But Dr. Culkin say this study reinforces that brain health and retinal health are linked. I am also hopeful that our molecular toolbox becomes more and more sensitive and we will be able to use our ophthalmological exams as a surrogate to help people identify potential cognitive problems even earlier. And we would certainly hope for that as well. Next article. A catatonic woman awakened after 20 years. Her story may change psychiatry. And Richard Seema wrote this article. A young woman was catatonic, stuck at the nurse's station, unmoving, unblinking, and unknowing of where she was or who she was. Her name was April Burrell. Before she became a patient, April had been an outgoing straight-A student majoring in accounting at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. But after a traumatic event when she was 21, she suddenly developed psychosis and became lost in a constant state of visual and auditory hallucinations. The former high school valedictorian could no longer communicate, bathe, or take care of herself. April was diagnosed with a severe form of schizophrenia, an often devastating mental illness that affects approximately 1% of the global population and can drastically impair how patients behave and perceive reality. She was the first person I ever saw as a patient, said Sandra Marks, director of precision psychiatry at Columbia, who was still a medical student in 2000 when he first encountered April. She is, to this day, the sickest patient I've ever seen. It would be nearly two decades before their paths crossed again. But in 2018, another chance encounter led to several medical discoveries reminiscent of scenes from Awakenings, the famous book and movie inspired by the awakening of catatonic patients treated by the late neurologist and writer Oliver Sacks. Marks and his colleagues discovered that although April's illness was clinically indistinguishable from schizophrenia, she also had lupus, an underlying and treatable autoimmune condition that was attacking her brain. After months of targeted treatments and more than two decades trapped in her mind, April woke up. The awakening of April and the successful treatment of other people with similar conditions now stand to transform the care of some of psychiatry's sickest patients, many of whom are languishing in mental institutions. 
Researchers working in the New York State mental health care system have identified about 200 patients with autoimmune diseases, some institutionalized for years, who may be helped by the discovery. And scientists around the world, including Germany and Britain, are conducting similar research, finding that underlying autoimmune and inflammatory processes may be more common in patients with a variety of psychiatric syndromes than previously believed. Although the current research probably will only help a small subset of patients, the impact of the work is already beginning to reshape the practice of psychiatry and the way many cases of mental illness are diagnosed and treated. These are the forgotten souls, said Marx, but we're not just improving the lives of these people. We're bringing them back from a place that I didn't think they could come back from. Even as a teenager growing up in Baltimore, April showed signs of the college accounting student she would later become. She balanced her dad's checkbook and helped collect the rent on his properties. She lived with her father, who served in the Army, and her stepmother, and is one of seven siblings. She was keenly focused on academics and would be disappointed if she received a B in class. She played volleyball in high school, and her family remembers her being as profoundly capable in all things. She helped her dad renovate dozens of rental properties and could even wire outlets and climb on roofs to tar and repair them. By all accounts, she was thriving in overall good health and showing no signs of mental distress beyond the normal teenage growing pains. April was a high achiever, and her older half-brother, Guy Burrell, said she was very friendly, very outgoing, and she just loved life. But in 1995, her family received a nightmarish phone call from one of her professors. April was incoherent and had been hospitalized. The details were hazy, but it appeared that April had suffered a very traumatic experience, which the Post isn't describing to protect her privacy. After April spent a few months in a short-term psychiatric hospital, she was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. Her family tried their best to take care of her, but she required constant attention, and in 2000, she went to Pilgrim Psychiatric Center for long-term care. Her family visited as often as they could, making the four-hour drive from Maryland to Long Island once or twice a month. But April was locked in her own world of psychosis, often appearing to draw with her fingers what appeared to be calculations and having conversations with herself about financial transactions. April was unable to recognize, let alone engage with her family. She did not want to be touched, kissed, or hugged. Her family felt as though they had lost her. When April was diagnosed with schizophrenia, Marx was still a promising medical student, an ocean away at the University of Amsterdam. His parents were both psychiatrists, and he had grown up around psychiatry and its patients. Marx remembered playing as a child in the long-term psychiatric facilities where his parents worked. He was never afraid of the patients or the stigma associated with their illnesses. As a visiting Fulbright scholar to the U.S., he made the decision not to head to more well-known institutes, but instead chose Pilgrim Psychiatric Center, a state hospital in Brentwood, New York, where many of the state's most severe psychiatric patients lived for months, years, or even the rest of their lives. It was during these early days at Pilgrim that he met April, an encounter that, quote, changed everything. She would just stare and stand there, Mark said. She wouldn't shower, she wouldn't go outside, she wouldn't smile, she wouldn't laugh, and the nursing staff had to physically maneuver her. As a student, Marx was not in a position to help her. He moved on with his career, but always remembered the young woman frozen at the nurse's station. Almost two decades later, Marx had a lab of his own, and he encouraged one of his research fellows to work in the trenches and suggested he spend time with patients at Pilgrim, just as he had done years earlier. 
In an extraordinary coincidence, the trainee, Anthony Zogby, encountered a catatonic patient standing at the nurse's desk. The fellow returned to Mark, shaken up, and told him what he'd seen. It was like deja vu because he started telling the story, and I was like, is her name April? Marx was stunned to hear that little had changed for the patient he had seen nearly two decades earlier. In the years since they had first met, April had undergone many courses of treatment, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, and electroconvulsive therapy, all to no avail. Marx was finally able to get consent for a full medical workup, and he convened a multidisciplinary team of more than 70 experts from Colombia and around the world, and other medical staff to figure out what was going on. The first conclusive evidence was in her blood work. It showed that her immune system was producing copious amounts and types of antibodies that were attacking her body. Brain scans showed evidence that these antibodies were damaging her brain's temporal lobes, brain areas that were implicated in schizophrenia and psychosis. The team hypothesized that these antibodies may have altered the receptors that bind glutamate, an important neurotransmitter disrupting how neurons can send signals to one another. Even though April had all the clinical signs of schizophrenia, the team believed the underlying cause was lupus, a complex autoimmune disorder where the immune system turns on its own body, producing antibodies that attack the skin, joints, kidneys, and other organs. But April's symptoms weren't typical, and there were no obvious external signs of the disease. The lupus appeared to only be affecting her brain. The autoimmune disease, it seemed, was a very specific biological cause and potential treatment target for the neuropsychiatric problems April faced. Whether her earlier trauma had triggered the disease or was unrelated to her condition was not clear. The diagnosis made Marx wonder how many other patients like April had been missed and written off as untreatable. We don't know how many of these people are out there, he said, but we have one person sitting in front of us and we have to help her. The medical team set to work counteracting April's rampaging immune system and started her on an intensive immunotherapy treatment for neuropsychiatric lupus. Every month for six months, April would receive short but powerful pulses of intravenous steroids for five days, plus a single dose of a heavy-duty immunosuppressive drug used in chemotherapy and borrowed from the field of oncology. She was also treated with a drug initially developed for lymphoma. The regimen was grueling, requiring a month-long break between each of the six rounds to allow the immune system to recover. But April finally started showing signs of improvement almost immediately. As part of a cognitive test known as the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, she was asked to draw a clock, a common way to assess cognitive impairment. Before the treatment, she tested the level of a dementia patient, drawing indecipherable scribbles. But within the first two rounds of treatment, she was able to draw half a clock, as if one half of her brain was coming back online. Following the third round of treatment a month later, the clock looked almost perfect. Despite this improvement, her psychosis remained, and as a result, some members of the team wanted to transfer her back to the Pilgrim Psychiatric Center. At the time, Marx had to travel home to the Netherlands and feared that in his absence, April would be returned to Pilgrim. On the day Marx was scheduled to fly out, he entered the hospital one last time to check on his patient, who he typically found sitting in the dining room in her catatonic state. But when he walked in, she didn't seem to be there. Instead, he saw another woman sitting in the room. It didn't look like the person I had known for 20 years who had been so impaired. And then I looked a little closer, and I'm like, holy, it's her. It was as if April had awakened after more than 20 years. I've always wanted my sister to get back to who she was, Guy Burrell said. 
In 2020, April was deemed mentally competent to discharge herself from the psychiatric hospital where she lived for nearly two decades, and she was moved to a rehabilitation center. Because of visiting restrictions related to COVID, the family's face-to-face reunion was delayed until last year. Her brother, sister-in-law, and their kids were finally able to visit her, though, at the rehabilitation center, and the occasion was tearful and joyous. When she came in here, we thought there was a brand new person here. She knew all of us remembered different stuff from back when she was a child. A video of the reunion shows that April was still tentative and fragile, but her family said she remembered her childhood home in Baltimore, the grades she got in school, being a bridesmaid on her brother's wedding, seemingly everything up until when the autoimmune inflammatory processes began infecting her brain. She even recognized her niece, who she had only seen as a small child, now as a grown young woman. When her father hopped on a video call, April remarked, oh, you lost your hair, and burst out laughing. The family felt as though they'd witnessed a miracle. She was hugging us and holding my hand, Guy said. You might as well have thrown a parade because we were so happy because we hadn't seen her like that in, like, forever. It was like she came home, Mark said. We never thought that was possible. Mark's talked about how as a teenager he saw the movie adaptation of Oliver Sacks' Awakenings featuring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro and how it had haunted him. The notion that people are gone in these mental institutes and that they come back still has always stuck with me. Before his death in 2015, Sacks had spoken to Marks about the discoveries involving patients like April. Sacks, also a professor at Columbia University, had personal interest in the work. He has a brother with schizophrenia. Your work gives me hope about the outcomes we can achieve with our patients that I never before had dreamed possible, as these are true cases of awakenings where people get back home to their families to live out their lives, Sachs said. The statement was confirmed by Sachs' long-term personal editor and executive director of the Oliver Sachs Foundation. After April's unexpected recovery, the medical team put out an alert to the hospital system to identify any patients with antibody markers for autoimmune disease. A few months later, Anka Askenes, a Columbia rheumatologist who had been on April's treatment team, approached Marks. I think we found our girl, he said. When Divine Cruz was nine, she began to hear voices. At first, the voices fought with one another, but as she grew older, the voices would talk about her. One night, the voices urged her to kill herself. For more than a decade, the young woman moved in and out of hospitals for treatment. Her symptoms included visual and auditory hallucinations, as well as delusions that prevented her from living a normal life. She was eventually diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which can result in symptoms of both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. She was also diagnosed with intellectual disability. She was on a laundry list of drugs, two antipsychotic medications, lithium, clozapam, ativan, and benzotropine that came with a litany of side effects but didn't resolve all of her symptoms. She was often unaware of what was going on, her hair was disheveled, and her medications caused her to shake and drool. She also had lupus, though, and was diagnosed when she was about 14, although doctors never made a connection between the disease and her mental health. When Marks and his team found Divine, she was 20 and had the adamant delusion she was pregnant despite multiple negative pregnancy tests. That's when she was probably at her worst, say experts. Then last August, the medical team prescribed monthly immunosuppressive infusions of corticosteroids and chemotherapy drugs, which was a regime similar to what April had been given a few years prior. By October, there were already dramatic signs of improvement. She was like, yeah, I gotta go, like I've been missing out. After several treatments, Divine began developing awareness that the voices in her head were different from real voices, a sign that she was reconnecting with reality. 
She finished her sixth and final rounds of infusions in January, and by March she was well enough to meet with a reporter. I feel like I'm already better, she said during a conversation. I feel myself being a person that I was supposed to be my whole entire life. Her presence during the interview was first timid and childlike. She said her excitement and anxiety about discussing her story reminded her of how she felt at school the day before a big field trip. Although she had lost about 10 years of her life to illness, she remembers many details. As a child, she did not know how to explain what was going on to her family and often isolated herself in her room. Because the crisis was so bad, it felt like I was being mute, she said. I was talking without making any sense, so they wouldn't understand what I was saying. Divine still remembers what the voices sounded like and the often disturbing images she hallucinated, a hand reaching down from the ceiling as she lay in bed, the creepy nurse with a crooked head and black teeth who approached her at the hospital. She remembers the paranoia she felt at times, and I thought the world was ending. I thought the police were out to get me. But she also remembers the fateful first phone call with Marks when she learned that her lupus could be affecting her brain. She remembers asking, if it affects my brain, then what does this have to do with my mental illness? Her recovery is remarkable for several reasons, the doctor said. The voices and visions have stopped, and she no longer meets the diagnostic criteria for schizoaffective disorder or intellectual disability. In a recent neuropsychiatric evaluation, she not only drew a perfect clock, but also asked how the physician was doing, which is a level of engagement the doctor found so surprising that she noted it in the patient report. But more importantly, Divine now recognizes that her previous delusions were not real. Such awareness is profound because many severely sick mental health patients never reach that understanding. Today, Divine lives with her mother and is leading a more active and engaged life. She helps her mother cook, goes to the grocery store, and even navigates public transportation to keep her appointments. She's even babysitting her siblings and children, listening to music, taking them to the park, or watching movies, responsibilities her family never would have entrusted her with before her recovery. She is grateful for her treatment and the team that made it possible. Without their help, I wouldn't be here, she says. I feel excited like a new chapter is beginning. While it is likely that only a subset of people diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders have an underlying autoimmune condition, Marks and other doctors believe there are also likely many more patients whose psychiatric conditions are caused or exacerbated by autoimmune issues. The cases of April and Divine have also helped inspire the development of the SNF Center for Precision Psychiatry and Mental Health at Columbia which was awarded a $75 million grant in April. The goal of the center is to develop new treatments based on specific genetic and autoimmune causes of psychiatric illnesses. Mark said he's begun care and treatment on about 40 patients since the SNF Center opened. The center is working with the New York State Office of Mental Health, which oversees one of the largest public mental health systems in America, to conduct whole genome sequencing and autoimmunity screening on patients at long-term facilities. For the most disabled, the sickest of the sick, even if we can help just a small fraction of them by doing these detailed analysis, that's worth something. You're helping to save someone's life. Get them out of the hospital, have them live in the community, or go home. Discussions are underway to extend the search to the 20,000 outpatients in the New York State system as well. Serious psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia are more often undertreated in underprivileged groups, and autoimmune disorders like lupus disproportionately affect women and people of color with more severity. 
How many people ultimately will be helped by the research remains a subject of debate in the scientific community. But the research has spurred excitement about the potential to better understand what is going on in the human brain during serious mental illness. I think we as basic neurologists are now in a position both conceptually and technologically to contribute, and it's our responsibility to do so, say the experts. Emerging research has implicated inflammation and immunological dysfunction as potential players in a variety of neuropsychiatric conditions, including schizophrenia, depression, and autism. It opens new treatment possibilities to patients that used to be treated very differently, say experts. In one study published last year in Molecular Psychiatry, doctors identified 91 psychiatric patients with suspected autoimmune diseases and reported their immunotherapies benefited the majority of them. Belinda Lennox, head of the psychiatry department at the University of Oxford, is enrolling patients in clinical trials to test the effectiveness of immunotherapy for autoimmune psychosis patients. In addition to more common autoimmune conditions, researchers also have identified 17 diseases, many with different neurological and psychiatric symptoms, in which antibodies specifically target neurons, say the doctors. One of the doctors first identified the most common of these diseases called anti-MNDA, receptor autoimmune encephalitis. As a result of the research, screenings for immunological markers in psychotic patients was already routine in Germany, where psychiatrists regularly collect samples from cerebrospinal fluid. Marx is also doing similar screenings with his patients. He believes highly sensitive and inexpensive blood tests can detect different antibodies, which should be part of the standard screening protocol for psychosis. Also on the horizon, more targeted immunotherapy rather than current sledgehammer approaches that suppress the immune system on a broad level. I think we're at the dawn of a new era, and this is just the beginning. In June, Marx will present the findings at a conference, and Divine will be there to share her story in her own words. The message I want to give people is that there is time to heal, she said. There's time to heal yourself from many obstacles we've been facing in life. The future for patients like April and Divine is this. April will be turning 50 this year, and she has lived in a rehabilitation center for the past three years. Her family continues to visit, but she has recently regressed because she was not receiving adequate maintenance care. Marks and April's family remain optimistic that she will improve after resuming treatment. She would not want society to give up on people like her. Divine, now 21, is still living with her family, writing poetry, and hopes for a future helping others, possibly as an art therapist. She still needs support after losing more than a decade of her childhood, though. Her experience is akin to psychologically being in a coma for 10 years and then waking up and the world's moved on. The treatment team is working to help Divine and other patients to catch up on lost time and navigate life after recovery. Divine says she wants to help motivate others in their struggles, which is quite admirable. I really hope they continue this research. It seems so important to try to even help a small fraction of these patients with mental illnesses is so very, very critical. Let's jump to the next article. A four-year-old boy was bitten by a copperhead snake. Even 10 vials of antivenom did not stop the reaction. And this article was written by the WSBTV news staff. A four-year-old Tennessee boy is recovering after he was bitten by a copperhead snake during a camping trip. Jad Pollen was camping with his family in North Carolina just across the Georgia border over Memorial Day weekend when he was bitten by a snake while playing on the front porch of a cabin. He was rushed to a nearby emergency room where he received 10 vials of anti-venom treatment. 
Despite that treatment, his ankle continued to swell around the bite mark, and he ended up having to be flown to Children's Hospital in Chattanooga. He was in the hospital for three days and was finally able to return home. His mother said she was so thankful our buddy is stable and asking for Paw Patrol and his best friend Oliver. Thank you, Jesus, for modern medicine, sweet family, and incredible healthcare professionals. Wow, that is really scary. Really have to be careful out there in the wilderness, folks. There's all kinds of creepy crawly creatures out there that could be dangerous. And one last article, and this one is somewhat related to one of our very first episodes that we did on the show that kind of dealt with mass hysteria. But there's a more recent case of it that we're going to talk about today, and that was, was mass hysteria behind the mysterious case of 227 middle school students fainting last fall? And Lillian Perlmutter wrote this article. The students were hundreds of miles apart. Drugs were blamed at first, but now researchers believe the truth is far stranger. It was likely one of the first cases of mass hysteria spreading online. On September 23, 2022, 12-year-old Esmeralda walked out of the girls' bathroom in her middle school in Mexico and fainted. Her best friend, Diala, came out behind her and also fainted. Over the next hour, nine other girls and one boy at the Federal One Public Secondary School would spontaneously collapse in their classrooms, in the bathroom, and the school's courtyard. Another 22 students would report other unusual symptoms like vomiting and headaches. Esmeralda's mom, Gladys, got a text message from her niece, Esmeralda's cousin, telling her to come to the school immediately. There she found Esmeralda laying on the pavement in the school's central courtyard, unable to speak or stand. Diallo was slumped beside her, and a cluster of other sick children lay on their backs. Esmeralda fainted and started convulsing on the ground, Diallo said later. I didn't expect to faint too, but then I woke up on the ground and I couldn't breathe right. It was really fast and my eyes were red. Several of the affected students reported smelling something smoky. Esmeralda said it reminded her of the smell of leaves burning up in the mountains, leading to suspicion that marijuana was possibly involved. But drug tests later came up negative. Several students also remembered seeing a powder in the bathroom that had a distinct mustard-like hue. School administrators later turned up a sandwich bag with chicken soup base and a toxicology report came up clean for drugs. In the hospital, doctors concluded Esmeralda and the others had suffered a panic attack. By the next morning, all of the children appeared to have fully recovered and classes resumed the next week. Two weeks later, on October 7th, at a middle school a few miles away, About 150 miles from the original location, at least 68 children fainted, vomited, or became disoriented. Dozens were hospitalized. An affected girl told a reporter that her mouth felt like it was crawling with ants, and this time tests found traces of cocaine in four of the affected students. Four days after that, on October 11th, there was a second incident at Federal One. This time, 18 children, mostly girls, fainted. And once again, Gladys got a frantic text and rushed to the school. She found her daughter walking and talking normally, though. But when Esmeralda went back inside to use the girls' bathroom, she again smelled the strange burning odor and thought she saw blood. Through a cloud of dizziness, she made it back outside. Mommy, I don't feel good, she told Gladys and fainted. Yet again, within 12 hours, Esmeralda was back to normal. But this time, the school shut down while administrators puzzled over what to do next. A team of canines swept the halls searching for drugs, but none were found. Over the next two months, episodes of mass fainting were reported in at least six middle schools in four Mexican states, hundreds of miles apart. It affected 227 children in total, most of them girls. 
Several students were sick for days or weeks. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador began including regular updates on the government's investigation into the feigning episodes in his daily press conferences, but Gladys and the other parents felt they were getting no closer to an answer. Gladys didn't buy the doctor's verdict that Esmeralda had suffered a panic attack. Like other parents, she worried her daughter had been drugged. During the first hospital visit, the family had paid extra money for blood tests for marijuana, cocaine, opioids, methamphetamine, and other amphetamines. The test cost about 350 pesos, or around $18, which was a hefty expense. The tests all came back negative, but Gladys remained skeptical. It's possible there's something going on at the school and they don't want us to find out, she said. She later ordered a second test from a better resourced and more expensive lab in Mexico City. Months passed and the results never arrived. A diverse set of theories was floated on social media and in the Mexican press. Fertilizer poisoning, a rare bacterial illness, possible smoke inhalation. An article in El País, a Spanish newspaper, posited a known substance could have been hiding in the water sources, while other news sites mentioned a possible gas leak. In time, the consensus mostly settled around drugs. The episodes were evidence of a rise in adolescent drug use or even more frightening, a twisted play by drug cartels. Proof of this, such as it was, mostly came down to the fact that the first episodes occurred in Chiapas, a well-worn path on the southern edge of Mexico for drug and migrant smugglers heading north from Central America. The cartel theory was further fueled in mid-October when investigators in Bacho announced they were looking for a man with a large tattoo who was seen hanging around the school on the day of the fainting episodes. Luis Villagran, a prominent migrant advocate in Tapachula, who happened to have nieces enrolled at Federal One, said the episodes could be part of a cartel initiation ritual where teenage recruits would be asked to drug their peers to prove their loyalty. While the majority of the parents avoided the press, Gladys agreed to multiple interviews and was incensed that Esmeralda and others were being vilified, and then investigators were dragging their feet and banking on public simply moving on. They needed to do something, because what if a child dies? If Esmeralda and her cousins bristled at this, Gladys would tell them, look at the news that's coming out and how they're saying you are the bad guys. After the fainting episodes became national news, I was among the throng of journalists who traveled down to Tapachula from Mexico City. Journalists packed the sidewalk in front of Federal One, which is located in a quiet residential neighborhood near the center of town. One parent who identified herself only as Susanna because she worried her son would be targeted in retaliation for speaking out, she said she believed drugs were involved and most likely brought in by the adolescents themselves. The school was definitely putting a lid on the truth and she was sure there would be a third fainting episode because there's no punishment for the person responsible. Indeed, Tapachula was awash with rumors and Diala's mother tried to enroll her daughter in another school but was rejected. Since her daughter had been one of those who fainted, administrators there said they worried she was an addict and would bring drugs to class. Gladys joined dozens of parents at a press conference in front of Federal One where they asked for greater transparency from the school and the local district attorney. A banner went up saying, we demand an immediate response in large red lettering. On October 18th, Esmeralda and six other students from the original episode were called to the Chiapas district attorney's office to be questioned by a psychologist. Those depositions were going to give us lines of investigation, said the lead investigator. A specialist in cases involving children, his office was investigating the episodes in Tapachula and Bocho. If one child says they gave candy to someone else, we're going to follow that thread until we know what role which foods played. 
Over four hours, the kids were interviewed one by one, and each was made to stick their thumbs in blue ink for prints, which they mischievously pressed the leftover ink in their fingers into their arms and their friends and parents, making little smudgy tattoos. As each emerged from their interview, the others teasingly demanded to know if they'd cried. On the drive back to the neighborhood, everyone sat silently except Esmeralda and Diala, who whispered to one another as they shared a bag of Doritos. But little seemed to come of those interviews. As various investigations reached their close, locals were left with muddled summaries and dead ends rather than answers. An internal report from the Chiapas DA office later tentatively listed the cause of the second episode as probable intoxication through food. But on the very next page, the report listed probable transmission through the air as the culprit. In another report, the Bochel episode was blamed on probable intoxication with stimulants. The theory in that case was that water at the school had been spiked with cocaine, which explained why four of the students had tested positive for the drug, but didn't seem to account for the fact that 64 other students who had tested negative for the drug had also fainted. The families in Tapachula, Bochel, and other affected towns further near Mexico City expressed frustration that their children could still be in danger, but there was little they could do. I returned home to Mexico City along with the last of the national media, resigned that we might never know what was behind the brief but alarming epidemic of fainting spells. Back in Mexico City, I learned that not everyone had given up. Dr. Carlos Alberto Patoja Melendez, one of Mexico's few field epidemiologists, had taken an interest in the fainting episodes. When I reached him at his office at the Universidad Autonoma Nacional de Mexico, the country's premier medical school, he told me he had gathered what had been collected by investigators in the affected areas and conducted his own analysis. One by one, he had ruled out almost every possible theory. Drugs, still the favored narrative, could be excluded. Since nearly all of the affected students had tested negative for the most common recreational drugs, if it were drugs we would already know, he said. As for the four children in Bochel and one in Hidalgo who had tested positive for cocaine, he noted that they could have used the drug for weeks or months prior to the incident since cocaine tests are extremely sensitive. Bacteria from contaminated food, insecticide poisoning tied to nearby farms, or heat stroke were plausible explanations, but would have required a multitude of coincidences to occur simultaneously. Because the symptom onset was immediate, many of the students, including Esmeralda, did not feel sick before fainting. Doctors say the epidemic could have been caused by anything ingested orally, as the internal organs have no time to process the toxin. The pattern of spread through the schools did not match an inhaled toxin either. The epidemic left a scattered signature instead of taking on entire classrooms as its customary cases of aerial contamination, as in customary cases of aerial contamination. Furthermore, many of the schools are not close enough to farms and factories to be affected by pesticides, fertilizers, or other industrial chemicals. There was only one possibility remaining in this view, and it was an unlikely one, mass hysteria otherwise known as mass psychogenic illness. Intrigued, I set up a Zoom call with one of the world's leading experts on mass hysteria with Robert Bartholomew, a doctor and psychology professor at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Bartholomew has a graying mustache and a habit of interrupting himself as he talks. In his Zoom background is a bookshelf featuring a large volume of the Roswell UFO sightings. For years, he has collected cases of mass photogenic illness like coins or Pokemon cards and maintains a database of 3,500 examples going back to the Middle Ages. Since the 90s, he has written over 60 academic papers and several books on the subject. 
I've been anticipating something like this for years, he told me. In fact, mass hysteria was the theory put forward by a medical team in Veracruz following fainting episodes in one of the state's other schools on October 17th after microbiological analysis of food and water samples had revealed no bacteria, drugs, or toxins. Mexican President Lopez Obrador also hinted at the theory during his daily press conference in October, calling the painting episodes a mass effect, but the idea got little traction as his own government seemed focused on investigating unintentional poisoning. It was almost Christmas when we spoke. Bartholomew told me he planned to devote his winter break to researching Mexican fainting episodes, but soon he was busy requesting documents from the district attorney's office in Tapachula. Still skeptical, I contacted another mass hysteria expert, a professor at King's College in London, and told him about the feigning spells. He replied in an email and agreed the facts appeared to be consistent with an epidemic of mass psychogenic illness. It looks like a new case, he said. Mass hysteria is a rare psychological phenomenon where one person exhibits unexpected behavior like fainting, screaming, or twitching, and then others in the person's proximity replicate the symptoms involuntarily. Outbreaks can last a matter of hours or months, and they occur especially in environments with a strict hierarchy and where people spend a lot of time together, like places of work, religious centers, and schools. While it's often contagious among people who are emotionally close, like Dahlia seeing Esmeraldafane and then fainting herself, it can also spread between people in the same space who don't know each other. In the Middle Ages, mass hysteria was known as dancing mania, an uncontrollable need to dance. During the Renaissance and later the Puritan era, Mass hysteria was given religious significance and sufferers were labeled as witches and were thought to be possessed by demons. In modern times, cases have become triggered by a strange odor like the burning smell in Tapachula. The odor is perceived as a threat which sparks a fight or flight response. And adolescents, specifically girls, are more susceptible to mass psychosis, but it's unknown exactly why. In all but one of the fainting episodes in southern Mexico this fall, more girls were affected than boys, and the only previously documented case of mass psychogenic illness in Mexico was at a girls' boarding school in 2007. Adolescents tend to be more naive to the way the world works, right? They're more likely to believe in things like conspiracy theories, Bigfoot, space aliens, etc. I know I did when I was that age. School groups have been the quintessential setting for cases of mass psychogenic illness in this century and the last. In 1962, in Tanzania, over 1,000 school children were affected by fits of uncontrollable laughter for months. And in 1965, in Blackburn, England, 141 adolescent schoolgirls fainted in one day. Several had fainted from fatigue at church and were made to sit in a hallway to recover where they were seen by their classmates walking through, which is likely how the epidemic spread. In the early aughts, refugee children in Sweden began experiencing a new psychological condition in which they retreated into a state of reduced consciousness dubbed resignation syndrome. Between 2016 and 2018, 50 children at a school in Nepal would cry and shout in mass in periodic episodes. A diagnosis of mass psychogenic illness can be contentious. It is perhaps uncomfortable for doctors and local officials to blame a psychological effect when people are presenting with physical symptoms that could suggest there's a concrete danger to a community. In 2011, several students at a high school in New York developed uncontrollable twitching and began to garble their words. When the diagnosis of mass phytogenic illness was presented to the New York State Health Department, parents appeared on national television to campaign to get it discredited. 
What made the episodes in Mexico so interesting, Bartholomew said, is that they may represent something relatively new because they spread without immediate social contact between the people affected. How could hysteria spread across hundreds of miles through multiple different states between people who never physically interacted? From the outset, the working assumption has been that there is no connection between the middle schools where fainting episodes had been reported. But in late March, local officials were given information that challenged that assumption. During visits to one of the schools impacted, several students mentioned they were part of a WhatsApp group that also included students from Federal One in Tapachula. News of the initial fainting episodes had been shared there. The epidemiologist who asked to remain anonymous told local officials. It was the first concrete social media connection between two pools of affected people. I mentioned this to the experts and soon discovered they were working together. Both believe the fainting episodes in Mexico were examples of something new and alarming. Mass hysteria spreading online. The first signal that this could happen had come during COVID lockdowns in the UK when an epidemic of ticks was identified in teen girls in the UK and then several other countries. The ticks appeared to have started after they watched TikTok videos about people with Tourette's syndrome. In Mexico, according to the experts, as word spread over social media, messaging platforms, and in the news about poisoning or a cartel attack, so did fear of it spreading to more schools. This led other kids to replicate the very symptoms they'd heard about, often after they'd sensed something out of place, like a weird smell. Eight months after the first episode in Tapachula, experts are now the only people left investigating the fainting epidemic. The focus is now mapping out how each episode is linked to the ones that followed. This summer, teams from various universities are set to visit the six affected schools to interview students and their parents about social media use and what they learned about the other schools in the days preceding each fainting episode. The working theory is that the internet, coupled with the psychological and developmental disturbance of the pandemic, was the agent of transmission for mass hysteria. These children were in their homes for almost two years. That is significant in relation to the connection between the brain and the immune system. We've seen all sorts of weird things happen this past year. Back in Tapachula, Esmeralda is the only one among the 11 students who fainted in the first episode who's still enrolled in Federal One. The other 10 have transferred out. I called Gladys to tell her about the experts' theories and to let her know the team of epidemiologists will be coming to Tapachula. She still suspects her daughter was drugged, but told me she was keeping an open mind. After such painful uncertainty, Gladys says it's meaningful to hear that someone cares enough to see the investigation through. Maybe we'll finally get some answers, she said. Wow, that is some interesting stuff indeed. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We will put that email address as well as all of the articles we have used on the show today into the show notes. And please join us again next time when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild medical cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!